Are you ready? I don't know if you are. Are you morning people? I know that. And you are ready. Some of you are practically on lunchtime already. Well, we're still in this uh, this little mini-series, if you will, that started with a group called ExploreGod.com. And uh, my brother's church, I mentioned this uh, back in uh, Indiana, was part of that. And, of course, they and everybody else who was doing it finished about a month ago. I haven't deviated other than our normal routine here, and this particular two-part little thing that I'm doing um, should only be one, but you're not the boss of us, right? So in the five previous little parts of the series here that I've done, I've given reasons why every human being has purpose and meaning. I've given reason for believing in the existence of God. I've given reasons for why God allows pain and suffering and reasons why the Bible is the word of God. Now, not surprisingly, my main source of answers for each of those important questions has been, (laughs) shock among shocks, the Bible itself. And I have also used the thoughts, though, and the statements of the one known throughout history as Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer, who, according to Christian doctrine, is God incarnate, which means God in the flesh. Now, to the Christian, to the Christ follower, all of that ought to be perfectly satisfactory. It ought to be compelling, and it ought to be conclusive. But what about the skeptic or the declared unbeliever or even the obvious antagonist? Because what I have done in the course of the five series, and I'm going to continue to do, admittedly, is I have used the Bible to prove that Jesus is God and used Jesus as God to prove the Bible, which is called circular reasoning. And by itself... Circular reasoning is never compelling. It's never a great manner of argumentation. Maybe a graphic can help with this. This is an example of circular reasoning. The Bible is the word of God because Jesus says so. And why should we care what Jesus says? Because Jesus is the son of God. And how do we know Jesus is the son of God? Because the Bible says so. The Bible, And so circular reasoning just kind of starts and restates the premise, using the premise to prove the premise, and that's called circular reasoning. Maybe Dilbert can help us out. All right. So we got Dilbert and Dogbert is the little, you guessed it, the dog. And Dilbert says, And we know mass creates gravity because dense planets have more gravity. And Dogbert, the ever skeptic when it comes to Dilbert, says, how do we know which planets are more dense? And Dilbert says they have more gravity. And Dogbert astutely notices that's circular reasoning. And, of course, Dilbert snaps back. I prefer to think of it as having no loose ends. Okay, then. That is circular reasoning. And circular reasoning... While it may be true, is not necessarily true. So, 
understanding that, I didn't use only circular reasoning to give answers for my conclusion that the Bible is the word of God, having resorted, if you were here for those messages, to evidences and information external to the Bible in order to corroborate what the Bible says. But at the end of the day, I am still admitting it still has to be taken on faith. And I said at the outset uh, two weeks ago when we were together last that no one can prove that the Bible is the very word of God. So while we cannot compel someone to accept the Bible as the unique word of God, we can compel someone who is reasonable to at least know what the Bible says and what the Bible does not say. This morning, I want to plainly, even if what will definitely be superficially, clarify, did Jesus claim to be God? And if so, was he God? And so again, this is going to be done in uh, over two weeks, this week and next week. And you see, this is a game changer Where we come out at on the sides of this is a game changer for mankind. Because whether or not Jesus is God Almighty is everything. Why? Well, because if Jesus, first of all, claimed to be God and he isn't, well, then the Bible is just another flawed book containing some worthy thoughts about life, but nothing more than mere opinion and sentiment worth no more consideration than Thoreau's Walden or the Upanishads, or the Bhagavad Gita, or the Book of Mormon, or the Quran, or the thoughts of Confucius, or the Buddhas, or the writings of L. Ron Hubbard, who wrote a science fiction book, Dianetics, that was turned into Scientology, not to be confused with the Science and Health, written by Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, or even the writings of Anton LaVey, who you may not know, was the one who penned the Satanic Bible. So this is a big question. And what I didn't know when I started out on this was that 10 or 13 years ago, I did another series on Is Jesus God just from the Gospel of John that ran 13 weeks. And I am doing this, I was supposed to do it in one week, according to they, them, and those of the Explore God people. But I'm cheating a little bit, and I'm going to cover it in two weeks. And you see, it is a big question, which is why it needs to be answered in a big way. Because seriously, your very lives now and forevermore stand or fall on whether or not Jesus is truly the God of the universe, not just a God, some kind of God, one of many gods, or God small g, etc., etc. This is why when it comes to Jesus and his, what we call his ontology, that it's just meaning, means the nature of his being, we have to vehemently reject patronizing language that sounds flattering and sounds drippingly respectful, but still cast Jesus as less than the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal creator, ruler of all. And so what I'm going to do this morning in this first of those two parts is to deal with why the ontology of Jesus has been so widely understood as being someone less than God Almighty. 
And I have to tell you, honestly, and I think you will, too, get a kind of a feel for what I'm saying here, is that I do understand how people get to that point of seeing Jesus as, yeah, if he is deity, okay, but he's not God-God. He's just kind of God-ish or a small-g God or what have you. I really do see why. The Bible can be misleading if not read carefully, and I would say at times, you know, even studied. And I would say, too, though, that if you are predisposed to seeing Jesus as less than who he really is, then you're going to see him as less than who he really is, being God Almighty. Because it is pretty easy to snag all of the verses in the scriptures that underscore Jesus' unique humanity while glossing over the overwhelming information about his deity. And again, the focus on that is going to be next week. So this morning, again, let's look at some of the information that might give the impression that Jesus is someone other than God Almighty, true God, from everlasting to everlasting, and then see how we can handle it and deal with it. From Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 31. Behold... This is the the speaking to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, if if you don't recognize that, that's kind of the most well-worn Christmas uh, citation, at least part of it, um, that is out there. And maybe because we are so used to that Christmas story that when we come to it, and oftentimes if you did like we did in our household with our kids and all that growing up, you know, before we open the presents, we're going to read the Christmas story. And, you know, they're, they're like, oh, that's a great idea, Dad. Couldn't we even study it maybe this morning? Yeah, you know that's what they were thinking. It's like, okay, yes, great, let's get on to the presents being opened, okay? But now what I want you to do, and, and this, this has helped me over the years in, in all kinds of different um, um, historical narratives or just scenarios in Scripture, is to step out, try and step out of my time frame and my world and my body and kind of put myself in the place of the people who are doing the speaking and the hearing and the listening and the reacting and all of that. So... We have to put ourselves, if you will, in the place now of a teenaged girl. And a young teenaged girl, more than likely. Like possibly 12 or 13, given the culture of the day. We have a teenaged girl, and she is there in the middle of a Mideastern culture. And she is betrothed to be married, but she's not married. And an angel appears to her and says, you're going to be pregnant. Now remember, again, the time is not 2019 in a godless Western culture where our moral compass or compasses have been dismantled, stomped, and discarded. And what struck me very freshly this time studying this well-worn passage was that Mary doesn't seem to ever have the thought that we know of, of something along the lines of, oh boy, 
God is giving me a special revelation about my life and future husband together. How special that he would give me a prophetic word that is a foretelling that me and Joseph are going to have a baby. And to be sure, if that's what it was, that would have been a big deal. It would have been a special deal because unlike today, having children was a greatly hoped for, greatly anticipated, greatly prayed for and longed for life expectation. So the Lord sends a messenger to reassure this fine young lady that she will indeed be blessed with a baby. That would be, I contend, anyone's default position of thinking because that's the only thing when you are putting yourself in Mary's position without all the hindsight and obviously things that we have concerning the scriptures and the full story and everything. That would be the only thing that would make any sense at all to Mary. By human reason, nothing else would come to mind. Oh, but Mary is... Special. And this is supernatural. And Mary is in wonder. And in Luke one thirty four, Mary says to the angel, How can this be? Since I'm a virgin. Mary's question is a sense of urgency contained therein. She's not looking at this from the view of marriage. She's not looking at this like, I'm going to be pregnant. I'm sorry, she's looking at this thinking more, I'm going to be pregnant and not in a few years or a few months when Joseph and I have married and settled down. But now, Mary rightly has questions. And the Lord could very easily have told the angel, look, you go back and tell, when Mary asks, and she's going to ask, just say, Mary, this is the Lord God Almighty. Just zip it and trust. But no, the creator of the universe sees to it that Mary gets an answer. You're right, Mary, this baby is not going to come from your husband, Joseph. Mary, you're going to have to take the birds and the bees and throw them out the window. You're going to have to forget about putting that silver dollar under the pillow or expecting the arrival by the stork. The stork died. He ain't coming. It's not how it's done. Mary knows what it takes to conceive a child. It takes a mother and a father. In other words, it takes two to tango. And right now, Mary's the only one out on that dance floor. There is no other means of having a baby in first century Palestine. Verse 35, the first part, the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Meaning, Mary, you're right, it still takes two to tango. Oh, but this dance is going to be unique. There's still two people dancing, but one 
is the creator of the universe. One is God Almighty in a never before or since miracle of miracles. You, Mary, will be the mother and God will be the father. And for that reason, the second part of Luke one thirty-five, and for that reason, and for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. For what reason? There's still a mother and father in the miraculous picture. And for that reason, he will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that Reason the holy child shall be called the son of God. That is the empirical foundational passage for the rest of what I'm going to say on the whole misunderstanding of this ontology of Jesus as somehow being less than full, capital G, big G, awesome G, the one and only Jehovah God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triunity from the beginning of time without beginning and without end. For that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. We have an unknown, before or since, a miraculous supernatural occurrence in history whereby the union of the female contribution to the miracle of life with the masculine, albeit supernatural, and unique contribution to the miracle of life brings about a baby a baby that is fully God and fully man. What we have stating the obvious is an unprecedented occurrence in the history of mankind of a supernatural act brought about by the infinite creator of all. Now listen precisely, and here is the struggle. We have an infinite God trying to communicate an infinite reality to finite humanity. And the language simply fails because there is nothing in human experience to which it can be compared. And as we see so many other places in the scriptures, the Bible uses the limited language of mankind to explain the unfathomable mysteries of the divine. And like and so consequently, it not can be, it will be strained. The language of finite beings is simply incapable of explaining an infinite creator. This is why we read things in the scriptures using various, uh, you know, literary devices to, to, uh, make comparisons, analogies, metaphors, similes. Another one that we see used often of God is things like when it says in the eyes of the Lord, Second Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the ends of the earth. 
Or when it says in Genesis that the Lord said, let us go down to Babel and confuse their language. Or again about Babel, let the Lord, the Lord came down to the city to see. These are called anthropomorphisms. You've heard it from me before. Anthropo from anthropology, the study of man, and morphisms from morphe, the form or the shape of. What it means is it is a literary device for ascribing human characteristics to non-human characters. And the point of it is to help us better understand the situation or the story or whatever it is that's being talked about. Explaining something like the virgin birth can only at best be approximated with the language that we have at our employ, giving us insight to the mysterious theology of just for one example of John 1, 1, when we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. What our inept limitations of language could never accomplish to precision, God accomplished in becoming the word incarnate. In the profound words of singer-songwriter of some years ago, Michael Card, he writes, saying, And so the light became alive and manna became man. Eternity stepped into time so we could understand. So here's the situation. Jesus is called the Son of God, And because we are limited in our human experience, we find it difficult to escape any association that we have when we think of the Son of God. Because in our experience and in our language, the Son of anyone is obviously not the same as their Father, not the same as the father in substance or character or ability or intellect or strength or age, to mention only a few. And so we become understandably tongue-tied by the limits of our language, finding it difficult not to think of Jesus, the Son of God, as being less than and foundationally different than God the Father. But again... The title, the Son of God, is to help Mary in her context, as well as the rest of mankind in our context, to have some kind of intellectual touch point of how a virgin could conceive and give birth. And the rest of all the baggage that comes with our biological sense of the Son of anyone has to be shelved. This is the first reason for the confusion that comes about, I believe, and has come about by the result of, or by the title of the Son of God. Only the first reason. So now we want to continue in the scriptures, letting what? Letting the Bible interpret the Bible. And let's see where it takes us. This is reason number two. 
The second reason that there are many misunderstandings about the ontology, the nature of the being of Jesus, are the very limitations that we do in fact see through God the Son's life on earth as when we compare him to the limitless attributes of God the Father. So just trying to be totally fair here. So let's just note a true smattering of them. And I mean, this is just a smattering, a fraction of what this could take, which is why it took 13 weeks last time. In John chapter 5, God the Son heals a man who's unable to put himself in the pool at Bethesda where many were being healed. And it's also on the Sabbath. So Jesus, the Son of God, heals the man, and of course the Pharisees, the religious elites of the day, ignore the supernatural, spectacular, indisputable miracle that Jesus just performed, and instead are ripped that Jesus would dare to violate the Sabbath law. So in John 5, beginning verse 18, this is what we read. So Jesus said to those Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord. Wait a minute, I thought he was God, fully God, God Almighty. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Now, there's a lot here, but again, I'm focusing on the reasons for misunderstanding Jesus' ontology or the nature of his being The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. A few verses later in verse 30, it says, I can do nothing of my own initiative. In John chapter 8, there is a heavy and discomforting conversation between Jesus and the religious elite. They are accusing Jesus of being the spawn of the devil. The Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being a child of the devil. And Jesus corrects them very pointedly, oh, but ever so tactfully, not, telling them that their father actually is the devil and that they are going to hell. A couple chapters later, Jesus says in John 8, verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And I always do, uh, one verse later, I always do the things that are pleasing to God the Father. I speak of what I have seen with my Father a few verses later. So all it is to say is that we cannot duck the fact that in these examples there is a clear sense of subordination comparing God the Son to God the Father, which is confusing. Jesus appears to be dependent on God the Father's godness rather than his own. Luke 5:17. One day Jesus was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Wait, who? We're we're talking about Jesus. 
God and the power of the Lord, we are told, was present there for him to do healing. Meaning, if the power of the Lord wasn't there for him to do healing, that Jesus could not have healed. And I can think of scriptures elsewhere where it tells us that. About no prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. Therefore, he could not do very many works. Um, he could not do many uh, wonderful works there. It sure seems, let's be candid, like Jesus did not have unquestioned authority, as we would expect of God Almighty, to do the miracles that he did, nor even to speak of his own accord, but instead was subject to God the Father, giving the go-ahead, basically, first. Another example, Jesus speaking to the disciples Jesus says the words, John 14, 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but my father who dwells in me does his works. And one more, which is kind of the, the one that, that a lot of people like to camp on. In Matthew 24, verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? And the end of the age. <laughs> Man, can't you see yourself sitting there with Jesus going, okay, Lord, when, when, when are you ushering in the kingdom? Remember, their life was not peachy and ducky. They were under Roman rule. There was persecution big time. So, Lord, Jesus, son of God, tell us. When's it all going to happen? And Jesus says to them in verse 36, Oh, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. <sighs> okay, hold on. <laughs> if Jesus is truly God... As I'm saying, very God, fully God, not part God, part man. And God is omniscient. What's he mean? Nobody knows except God the Father. Not even the Son knows. The manner in which Jesus speaks of himself in relation to the Father sounds for all the world like they are, in fact, two distinct Entities related by blood only to use the language again, our inept language of familiarity with what it means to give birth to a child of a mother and father. Nevertheless, Jesus, God the Son, having distinct qualities, individual talents, and independent capabilities wrapped in a context of our understanding of the complexities of nature, nurture, and the genetics pertaining to such attributes. What do we do? What do we do? Let me restate the thesis from the beginning of this. This is going to tie it all up into a reasonable, spirit-inspired consistency to answer all of the questions. We have an infinite God 
again, this is restating what I already stated, trying to communicate an infinite reality to finite human beings and the language simply fails because there is nothing in our experience to which this can be compared. So does that mean then that we are stuck falling back to this to this position of, well, you just got to believe. We're back to faith. Just take that that blind leap of faith off the cliff, believing, hoping, praying, crossing your fingers, rubbing your rabbit's foot, that there will be a God there to catch you. No. That's not what it means. Because remember, our God is a God of reason. Enter that which will answer it, called the kenosis passage, passage, passage by theologians, kenosis from the Greek, kanao, which means to empty, to literally, quite literally, to empty. And I'm talking about Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, that is in the morphe theu, morphe from morphology, not from, morphology from morphe, meaning the shape of, right? Bacteriological morphology, blood cell morphology, it's the shape and what it looks like and the inclin, you know, the things that are included in, in inclusions, all those things, how we identify what they are, we can tell what they are. Jesus existed in the very morphe theu, the form of God, but he did not regard equality with God. Probably a bad translation there, but again, our language is inept in this. It better be something a lot more along the lines of do not regard the, of, of being one, actually one in, 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 uh, in substance as, as somehow being, being less than because it's not the same as. So Jesus existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, something to be clung to, but he emptied himself. There's the word there in the Greek, the kanao. He emptied himself, taking the morphe dulu. He went from morphe theu, the form of God, to morphe dulu, which is the form of a slave. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus as Savior and our substitute in all things had to experience what it is like to exist in a fallen world, a world that is completely tainted and turned upside down by sin that entered the world at Eden, just like you and I live in every day of our lives and everyone since Adam and Eve has lived in every day of their lives. We read in the book of Hebrews why he had to do that, because for since... in For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help those that are tempted. Meaning Jesus had to experience this world the same way we do. Hebrews 4, one more. For we do not have a high priest. This is talking again about Jesus. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but rather one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. 
the limitations that we see on Jesus, God incarnate, living in the world as fully God and fully man, are not because he is the son of God in some sense of subordination or inferiority, but because in his humanity he chose to abstain from exercising his full divine prerogatives so that we may have a way of escape from the ravages of sin. Our substitute had to be just like us. So he was fully God, never anything less than God, but he chose not to avail himself of those divine prerogatives so that he wouldn't have that kind of advantage and that the temptation would be real and strong just as it is for each one of us. Does that make sense? Three. Three people. Great. It's all right. I'll take it. I will take three. I had four in the first service, but three three is okay. Even though Jesus is called the Son of God, he is never anyone but true God ever-existent, the uncaused, caused, co-equal with Father and Spirit, three in one. And it is impossible, again, to fully explain the infinite with finite language. While the Chalcedonian hypostatic union of 451 A.D., was designed to explain that mysterious um, being of Jesus, the Son of God, who was fully God and fully man. It was intended to give clarity to how it is that somebody can be 100% God and 100% man without one diminishing the other. And the famous summation of that Chalcedonian hypostatic union means within God the Father and God the Son in the person of Jesus, there was a hypostasis. That is, they worded it, whoo, stay off the cliff. They worded it saying there is union between the God and the man. There's union, but not fusion. There is distinction, but not separation. And so God can and did exist as 100% God and yet 100% man. And although the Chalcedonian Hypostatic Union of 451 was designed for that explicit purpose of of explaining the the God-man hybrid, if you will, again, our inept language, I find that it works equally well within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, within the triune Godhead, They are all one in substance, one in essence. You have union, though, but not fusion. You have distinction without separation, meaning it was not God the Father who died at Calvary on the cross. It was God the Son. It is not God the Son, contrary to popular belief. (laughs) i got to quit that. Contrary to popular belief, it is not God the Son who lives in our hearts. That would present some very peculiar and immediate anatomical challenges because Jesus is corporeal, means he contains flesh and blood since coming of the Virgin Mary. 
And he sits at the right hand of God, interceding, praying for us till we return again. It boggles the mind. You are never going to explain it completely. I can't explain it completely. Nobody can. But they are all co-equal, all fully God in every way. And that is why all three of them were present at creation. Jesus took on human flesh at the time of Christmas. But we see Jesus in the Old Testament in numerous places. When the, we are told, angel of the Lord appeared, not an angel of the Lord. Remember, angel just means messenger. When it says the angel of the Lord, there is only one, and that is Jesus pre-incarnate. And we know it is him because he commands at one place, and I can't remember who it was that he had appeared to, but he told them to, to uh, actually they bowed down and worshipped him, and he did not stop that from happening which if he was just an angel, he would have, as in fact we see that played out in the book of Revelation where another angel appears to, uh, I don't know if, I guess it was John maybe, and John falls down to worship him and the angel goes, whoa, no, you don't do that. I'm just a messenger of God. There's only one who gets worship. We see Jesus in the person of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Jesus pops up here and there in the Old Testament. Then he takes on flesh and blood at Christmas. Three in one, union without fusion, distinction without separation. Jesus is every bit of God as Jehovah God. Even though we call him the son of God for all the reasons that have been stated. Part one. Next week, in my mind, it's going to be easier than this week. Some people, and I, I just ran into this this week, I kid you not. Some people say, no, Jesus, Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay, well, let's see. And if Jesus did claim to be God, and turns out he wasn't or isn't, and as I said at the beginning, you might as well go put this up next to uh, Mad Magazine. You can get some pithy ideas there. Is Mad Magazine even produced? Going back to my childhood, although I was not allowed to read Mad Magazine. So it was my brother's. It wasn't mine ever. The scriptures are reasonable, but you can't get away from the fact that, no, there's all, can't prove it, can't prove these things. But again, I want to underscore at the point of being repetitively redundant over and over again, that the opposition, you will, the antagonists, the critics, neither can they prove their side. So now reason becomes very important because you go, okay, well, let's look at the facts and see where reason takes us. At the end of that track, you will have reason to believe, but even then you cannot believe unless the Spirit of God is expressly pulling, drawing you, and opening your heart and mind to Him, which is why faith is a gift. Let me have you stand. 
Lord in heaven, oh, how I pray that you would give understanding, Lord, to my inept use of the language and that you would grant faith to the glory of your praise and name. Amen.